Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. Well, tonight, I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 26. So if you brought your Bibles tonight, well done, gold star for the evening. I'd actually encourage you to bring to church whatever Bible it is that you normally read. So if you do that on your phone, that's totally cool. Um, you can look it up on your phone, but I think there's something to bringing to church the Bible that you typically read because you kind of get into the habit of um, opening up your word, having it with you, those kinds of things. I love that the Bible is on my phone now because I literally can go anywhere with it. It's kind of cool. Um, but read along with me and whatever you've got. And if you didn't bring a Bible, totally cool. We got one in the pew and we're even going to put the words on the screen. So Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to look in verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Speaking of Jesus. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand them over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city, find a certain man, and tell him. The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. I have a problem with reading this passage of Scripture. Because I look at this man named Judas. And I think about his life leading up to this point. We don't know a lot about what Judas did prior to becoming one of the disciples. But what we do know is that this man was hand-picked by Jesus to be part of the 12 apostles. He was an apostle. For three years, he had followed Jesus, heard every teaching. He was there at the Sermon of the Mount. He'd seen every miracle that Jesus had performed. He had seen him do miraculous things. With five loaves and two fish, he fed 5,000 people. Then he turns around, does the same thing with 4,000 people. And Jesus gave this man, Judas, authority to preach and to cast out demons in his name. Not only was Judas watching Jesus do it, but Jesus goes, here, I'm giving you the authority to do exactly what you see me doing. And here he was, spending this time. No one had walked closer with Jesus than his 12 apostles. 
See, Judas wasn't just somebody who was part of the crowd, who's like, man, what's next? What's, what show is he going to do now? He wasn't just there watching what was happening. He was not just an observer. He was participating in the ministry of Jesus to a lost and a dying world. How does somebody like that end up in a place like this? And I think for a long time, I, I looked at this and I had this understanding of what Judas was like. Oh, you know what? He was just always kind of like that. This guy was always a crook. He was always deceitful. But Jesus, being so loving, just kind of kept him along the way. But he always had this in him. But I think something else might be at play here. Because the other thing that bothered me about this story is if Jesus knew that he was going to do this, why did he pick him? If Jesus knew he was going to do this, why did he make him treasurer? Judas carried the money bag. He was looking after the finances of the ministry. And Jesus went to bed and slept soundly every night knowing that Judas was embezzling. I've got a problem with that. Do you? Could you sleep well if every night you knew that your accountant was siphoning funds off from your bank account? If you knew that somebody was not only stealing from you, but it was money that was intended to help poor people, was putting it in his own pocket, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't put that person in charge of the finances. I wouldn't. So I've got a problem with this story. What happened with Judas? And why would Jesus have treated him like this? You know, I've seen in the last, I'll say, 20 years, a lot of people really grow disillusioned with church. They've been disillusioned with leadership. They've been disillusioned with people in church. And for some reason, things haven't quite played out the way they thought it was going to play out. And so they're stuck in this place of, I've invested everything into this, but things have not looked like the way that I thought they would look. What I signed up for the day of, I, of enlistment has not proven to be the case. And they become disillusioned. And many of these people either fall out of church, they fall out of their faith, or they end up in a place doing things they never would have dreamed of doing the moment they stood there and gave their life to Christ. There's a disillusionment that happens. And I think, how does Judas, who saw all of the goodness of God, end up betraying him? How does a Christian, who at the moment of salvation, experiences the love and the forgiveness and the filling of the Holy Spirit, become so disillusioned that they've walked away from the faith altogether? And then I look at it and I think, well, if it could happen to Judas, it can probably happen to me. But it hasn't. And tonight, I actually want to help you with some reasons why maybe Judas ended up in this place and what we can do to guard ourselves against becoming just like he did. It's pretty interesting. As part of going to D.C. for this last week, one of the things that Bella really wanted to do, my daughter, well, she wanted to go to the spy museum. Anybody have been to the International Spy Museum in D.C.? They built a brand new one. It was like two blocks from our hotel. 
Even though my kids begged me to take a scooter two blocks, I made them walk. I'm such a cruel father. I made my kids walk two blocks. But they wanted to go to this spy museum, which is full of all kinds of James Bond 007 stuff. It was pretty cool. But they had this section that talks about, you know, a big part of spying is recruiting spies from whoever it is that you're spying on. So if you're in America at the time of the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union, you're trying to convince somebody that's a part of the Soviet Union spy network to spy on your behalf, to betray your country, to spy on your own country. And in America, it works the same way. We've had plenty of people like Aldrich Ames and, and the FBI guy, uh, I can't remember his name, the one that was really bad. Hanson, that, that's it. And then, uh, I don't know if you remember John Walker. You remember John Walker? John Walker was a guy who was in the Navy, and uh, it was very, not funny, but I remember one day, this guy was selling secrets to the Soviet Union that basically told them everything our Navy was capable of, like completely sold out everything. And I remember one day I was coming back from the food line at my house, which is only about uh, seven-tenths of a mile from my house, and there's this little teeny office building right next to it, and I looked, and there were about a dozen FBI cars and 20 police cars on this little office building, and I'm like, what the heck is going on? This is my neighborhood. And that was his brother, Arthur Walker. That was his office because John Walker had even recruited his own son and his brother to sell secrets to the Russians as well. And I thought, how does somebody end up in this place? Like this guy was a, I think he was a, a, a senior chief in the Navy. Like he's been through hard yards. How does he, get, I'm sure he didn't go into the Navy expecting to spy on his country. That wasn't his original goal. But what shocked me is I would think to do that, you must be getting rich off this because why else would you do it? But you know that most of these spies, they only made at most maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars from what they did. I think if I'm going to risk my life and betray my country, there at least ought to be seven digits attached to this thing, right? $100,000 might sound like a lot of money, but not for the risks that I'm putting into this. So money was never the incentive. Do you know what one of the common ingredients was which each one of these spies is that the other side had convinced them that if you truly love your country, the only way you can help it is to betray it. Because those in charge are ruining your country. They're driving it into the ground. But if you want to help your country betray your country because it's the leadership that's causing the problems, and they begin to believe the lie that by betraying my country, I'm actually helping it. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But I promise you, it didn't just begin there. Each one of these men, it began with the disillusionment somewhere with where they were. And then as the lies began to creep in, suddenly it doesn't seem like betrayal anymore. It seems like I'm helping. I want to suggest to you tonight that perhaps a guy like Judas ends up in the place he is, not because he wants to harm Jesus, but I think maybe he thought he was actually helping Jesus. I want to show you this, if you'll stay with me. Because I think when you see Judas' response to Jesus' words, at that night at the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, you would think Judas would go, uh-oh, time's up. Because he had already met with the Pharisees before that. You'd think Judas would go, I think it's time for me to kind of make my way out of here. 
But he has a genuine look of surprise. Surely not me, Lord. It doesn't look like somebody who is, the jig is up. He seems wounded by Jesus' words. How could you say that I would betray you? How does somebody get to that point? To where Jesus' words it actually becomes an accusation that he feels like is wounding him. When the truth is, all Jesus did was speak truth to the lie that Judas had been believing for a long time. I don't believe that Judas ever saw what he did as betrayal. And I would suggest that perhaps he had been listening to subtle lies from the enemy for a long time in those three years. I don't think Judas signed up to be an apostle and at that day went, I can't, three years from today, I'm going to betray Jesus and I'm going to be famous. But over the course of time, maybe what he thought this ministry was going to look like, maybe with what he thought the kingdom was going to look like, wasn't quite panning out with the picture that he had put in his brain. And it's in that moment of unmet expectation that the enemy begins to see doubt. And he begins to creep in with his lies. Because the devil, the Bible calls him the father of lies. But yet Jesus is truth. The Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? But here's the way I picture this. Do you know, something very interesting happened with Judas. He carried the money bag, like he was in charge of the money for the ministry. And I heard a teaching on this uh, a while ago that really intrigued me. I did a little bit of research into this. But the money bag that he, the, the bag that he used to keep the money, that bag, that was not its original purpose and intent. In fact, that bag was actually called a tongue bag. It's kind of a weird name, isn't it? But its purpose was to carry musical instruments. It was like these little reeds that when you blew into them, it created music. And the purpose of that bag was to carry around instruments to keep them like the right temperature and moisture to keep them from dry rotting or becoming unusable. And the bag was meant to protect an instrument of worship. But somewhere along the line, Judas decided to replace the bag that was intended to create an atmosphere of worship and turn it into a place that just stored money. Somewhere along the line, Judas decided to replace worship with money. You want to find a quick recipe for trouble? Follow that recipe. And I believe that didn't just happen overnight. Those things happen, I believe, if you'll allow me some creative liberty here for a moment, is when the enemy comes in and begins to whisper, Hey, Judas, I heard you got picked treasurer. It's about time somebody recognized what's on your life. You know what would be a great place to keep that money? What about that bag you got on your hip? That'd be a great place to store the money that's going to come in. And boy, is this money going to come in. Have you seen what Jesus is doing? This is going to be awesome. You are just the man for this job. But you don't seem to have a place to store it. Why don't you use that bag that's on your hip? All you got to do is just throw away the instruments that are in it now. Because, hey, this is all about expansion. So just give up the thing that's taking up the space where money could be. 
And so easily, just subtly, huh, that sounds like a good idea. I need to create room for growth and space. So let me get rid of the worship so I can create space for more money to come in. Then he begins to tell them, hey, there's plenty of others who can sing and play. The Bible doesn't say this, but what if Judas was a worshiper? What if that's what was on his life? What if that's why God picked him to begin with? Jesus didn't need a treasure. He needs worshipers. And the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. But the enemy goes, I didn't get that worship, so I'm going to keep him from getting it. Hey, Judas, why don't you just put that away and start putting money into it? There's plenty of other people who can sing and play. Hey, Judas, money is important. This ministry is not going to expand without money, and somebody needs to take care of it. So why don't you be the one who actually does that? And by the way, you're doing such a good job of looking after this money, and it's coming in. Why don't you just take a little bit of it for yourself? No one will notice. I'm sure Jesus would be okay with it. You deserve it. You're doing a great job. Just take a little, you don't have to tell anybody, just take a little bit of that money for yourself. It'll be fine. You deserve it, Judas. You're doing such a great job. No one else has kept track of this like you do. But then after a while, the whispers become a little different. Hey, Judas, man, you're doing great. But does it seem like Judas has gotten just, or Jesus, sorry, does it seem like Jesus has gotten just a little bit off track? I mean, he started out great. Remember that time he fed 5,000 people? Wow, that was awesome. But did you hear him the other day when he said, you got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? Did that strike you as a little weird? He's good, but I think he's getting a little bit off track. And the wheels begin to turn in Judas's head. Hey, you know what, Judas? I think Jesus needs your help. It's a good thing he's got you with him because he's starting to get a little off track and you're just the person that can help line him back up so that he doesn't go astray. It's a good thing you're here with him, Judas. And by the way, I know he's been a teacher, but these high priests and Pharisees, they've been a part of your educational and spiritual heritage for hundreds of years. I think they might have a pretty good idea of what this Messiah thing is supposed to look like. I mean, this guy is pretty good, but he's only been here for three years. I mean, what does he really, or 30, 30 years, what, what does he know in 30 years compared to the hundreds of years of wisdom of these high priests and Pharisees? I think maybe the high priests and Pharisees know what's best for you more than he does. I think you ought to listen to them. Huh, you know what? He's right. Really, thousands of years of spiritual heritage. Am I going to throw all that away for this one man? He's doing great things, but I can't just leave behind all this stuff that was known before. Surely, if it's old enough, it must be true, right? Hey, Judas. Yeah, the high priests know what's best. So you know what you can do to help Jesus? Why don't you hand him over to them? Because they know what's best for him, too. Handing Jesus over to the high priests is an act of loyalty. If you really love Jesus, then you'll do what's best for him. He may not even realize this for himself. 
So you need to be the one who does this for him. You're helping him by doing this. Doesn't sound so crazy now, does it? But when you read the story and you go, 30 pieces of silver? Let me get this straight. Judas, who was with Jesus, saw all the miracles, gave up his soul for 30 pieces of silver. He gave up eternal life for a little bit of money that he couldn't have held on to anyway. You see, but that's truth. But when the subtleties of the lie that come into Judas's life, suddenly it doesn't sound like quite a stretch, does it? And I think perhaps it wasn't just the lure of money that caused Judas to end up there, but it's the lie that was attached to it that led to his deception. Here's the funny thing about lies. Lies only have the power that I give them. And the only way I give a lie power is, guess what? Is by believing it. If I don't believe the lie, it's got no power. If somebody came to me and they said, hey, Romy is... I'm trying to think of a lie. I can't say anything bad about you. I can't do it. I can't do it. If someone said Brent is... I'm just kidding. If someone came to me and said, hey, Brent's been embezzling money from his company. It's not that funny. Love you, Lizzie. If someone came to me and said that, but it's not true, if I don't believe it, it dies. But at the moment I go, huh, I wonder if Brent could have done that. Then all of a sudden I'm giving power to the lie, even when I know it's a lie. Lies only have the power that you give them. You know how I believe it is that Judas was so deceived by this process? He never shows any remorse. Even at the point of betrayal in the garden, Judas walks up to Jesus and goes, Rabbi! Because there's an exclamation point in the Bible. Rabbi! And he greets him with a kiss. Now either this is the most cold-blooded, mafioso, horrible sociopath the world has ever seen, or he was genuinely glad to see him and greeted him with a kiss. Because he's thinking, I'm helping. Imagine the deception. And it's in that moment that he's still a little bit confused. And the only time Judas shows remorse is when the chief priests condemn him to die. He never knew that's what was going to happen. The moment they condemn Jesus to die, here's what happens. The enemy lifts the veil on his own lie and shows him the truth of what he's done. And he is so filled with guilt that he runs off and commits suicide. You see, the enemy will reveal truth, but he only does it for the purpose of stealing killing, and destroying. So he'll only reveal truth to you when the moment of deception is done so that you'll end your own life because that was his goal to begin with. But when Jesus reveals truth, he does it to bring life. We only give power to lies when we believe it. You know, I heard a story about 
couple hundred years ago, but there were some settlers in the far north where it gets really cold in the winter times that were trying to establish a new settlement. And they were raising cattle, but they had a problem because when the winter snows came, the cattle couldn't really move like they used to before, and they kept getting attacked by this pack of wolves. And they thought it was a pack of wolves, but they realized it was actually just one wolf that would come in and had gotten a taste for these cattle. And he would go just about every night and would kill a different calf. But he was killing more than he needed to eat because he got a taste for the blood. He got a taste for what these animals were like, and he liked it. But because the territory was so vast, they couldn't hunt down this wolf because it was cold winter. You couldn't track it down. And so they were having a problem. They would try to stay up and try to catch this wolf to keep them from killing their cattle. But every night they'd get up and there'd be another one. Every morning they'd get up and there'd be another one dead. But there was a local tribe that they finally reached out to and they said, oh, you've got a wolf problem. And they said, yeah. Said, you're going about it the wrong way. Those are easy to take care of. You don't hunt them. Here's what you do. Said, you take a knife, kind of like this one, and all you got to do is get that freshly killed calf that you have and just keep dipping that knife in the blood of the dead calf. Let it congeal. Dip it again. Let it congeal. And do it till it's built up like this. Then you take the heel of the knife and you stick it in the snow and you just wait. And you know what happened? That wolf came and found himself a delicious calf blood popsicle. And so that wolf would come and he can't believe his luck. He's got such a taste for this calf blood. I can't believe it. And he starts licking this knife, and he's licking it and licking it, and this is the most delicious thing he could ever taste. But pretty soon, he starts to work through the calf blood, and he begins to hit the blade of that knife. But he's so enraptured with what he's eating, he doesn't realize that now the blood he's tasting is not the calves, but it's his own. And that wolf will lick that knife until he bleeds to death, having never realized what's happened. Can I tell you that every time we choose to believe a lie, even the subtle one, it's like taking another lick from that bloody knife. First one, not bad. Second one, probably not too bad. But at some point, you're going to have to stop licking the knife. Or you're going to end up just like that wolf. And just like that bloody knife, the thing about lies is they always appeal to our flesh, not our spirit. That knife looked really good to the wolf until it killed him. The lie always appears to, always appeals to our flesh. Hey, Brent's been embezzling money. Oh, yeah, because we, we like intrigue. Yeah, life's been kind of boring. That sounds exciting. Maybe I'll entertain that thought for a little bit. It always appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our insecurity. It appeals to our fear. It appears to our need or supposed need for validation from others. But the spirit within us doesn't do the same thing. At some point, you've got to stop licking the knife. 
You see, if you're living by the flesh, it'll never be revealed to you as a lie. But if you live by the Spirit, you'll look at that knife and go, I ain't touching that because that ain't no calf. Jesus will speak truth to our believed lies. This is what I love about Jesus. Because remember the other thing I said I had a trouble, problem with with this story? Is that if Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, he fix that. If Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, why did he trust him with the money? Oh, it drives me crazy. Why would he do this? But then do you remember one of Jesus' teachings where he says, store up your treasure in heaven? You see, when he's trusting Judas with the money, Jesus understands how little importance money actually plays in the kingdom of heaven. So when he's entrusting Judas with the money, it's not an act of outright irresponsibility. He's showing that it's not about the money. It's not the most important thing in life. The treasure was not money. Judas was the treasure. Jesus loved him, not the money. So I'll entrust a thief with money because money really doesn't play a bigger role in the kingdom as people think it is. But he loved Judas enough to say, Judas, I know you're cheating and I love you enough to entrust you with this thing anyway. I'm giving you the opportunity to come clean. I'm giving you the chance to maybe not betray me. I'm showing you that I love you enough to focus more on you than I do what's happening with the money. It's the same God who after Adam and Eve had sinned, he comes down into the cool of the day to walk with Adam in the garden like he used to before he sinned. And God does one of the most amazing things I've heard in Scripture. The all-knowing, omniscient, omnipotent God walks down in the cool of the garden and goes, Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. He knew what he had done. Why even ask the question? Because God wants us to repent. He wants us to live knowing that he gives us chance after chance after chance to just come clean and to say, Jesus, I need you. I screwed up. I tried it my way. It didn't work. He knows anyway, but he wants to give us the opportunity to turn from our old life and to follow him. And Jesus says in verse 21, we read it before, while they're eating, he says, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. This is what I love about Jesus. You ever see that phrase in scripture a lot? Truly, truly. Some translations say verily, verily. I don't know that we ever say that anymore. It kind of means the same thing. Why say truly, truly? Why say it twice? Because he's speaking truth to the lie that he knows all of us have been whispered to by the enemy. He knows the devil is whispering in your ear and he's saying, I truly tell you. 
And he doesn't speak truth for the purpose of destruction. Or he doesn't speak truth for condemnation. He speaks truth because he wants us to walk in the light. It's because he loves us just like he loved Judas. Just like he loved Adam. He wants us to walk with him in wholeness and forgiveness. Because he wants to give life. John 10.10 says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give you life and life to the full. So when God speaks truth to our lie, when we stand back and go, Hey, whoa, me, Lord, I'm not portraying. No, no, no. When he speaks truth, listen to it. Stop licking the knife. To those disillusioned with the church, Read with me in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. This is what he says to the church in Ephesus. He says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. You know what he's saying? Good job. You gave your all. You were all into this church thing. Well done. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. He's commending them for that. You have persevered. Hey, well done. You've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from that place. Can I tell you, the voice in you that says, don't trust leadership. Close your heart off from others. They'll hurt you just like the last church did. You don't need to repent. You're good. That's a lie. Because Jesus says, The problem is not that you were done wrong. The problem is that you lost your love for me. And I'm here to tell you how much I love you. Everybody at some point is going to get hurt. Everybody at some point is going to have to endure hardship if you're in this long enough. And God goes, the problem is not that. The problem is that somewhere in that, there was a lie attached to the pain that you believed. And when you believed the lie, you fell out of love with me. But I did not fall out of love with you. You are my son. You are my daughter. I died for you. I bankrupted heaven to be in relationship with you. And I will speak truth to the lie that you've believed. That other voice, that's the voice of the accuser. He wants to destroy you. Don't forsake your love for me. Fall back in love with me once again. I will restore the joy of your salvation. But the way that we receive that is different to the way the world says. The world will tell us, you just got to dig in deeper. So you got hurt in church and you fell out of love. If you dig in deeper, if you serve more, if you give more, if you get more involved. And he goes, no, no, no. Repent. Repent. But wait a minute. I was the one that was hurt. What am I going to repent of? I'm the one that got abused. I'm the one that got disillusioned. Me repent? Yes. Because you fell out of love. Repent. 
Repent and forgive. That's the way you get the love back. We think the way to get love back is to get under a different leader. Because the world will teach you the way that you keep from being deceived is you've got to have people in your life that will show you that you're deceived, right? Like if you have a leader that goes, hey, you're deceived. I need that in my life. I need friends in my life that can help me if I go astray. You know the problem with that is? None of the other 11 disciples had a clue as to what was happening in Judas's heart. At some point, don't you think one of the other 11 would go, hey, Judas, we've noticed a couple things. I think maybe you've got some lies being whispered to you. No. And the Pharisees, the leaders of the day, Jesus called them blind guides. They couldn't see it because they were deceived themselves. So at some point, we've got to have a plan as to how to know we're deceived. I had a friend that used to say this. I love it. The problem with being deceived is you don't realize you're deceived because you're deceived. That's a pretty good thought, isn't it? So how do you know if you're deceived? I promise you, friends can help. Leaders can help. But the only way that you can find out you're deceived is when you allow Jesus to speak truth to your lie. He knows you. He created you. I'm not trying to say that leaders and those things aren't important. But if that's your only plan, you're going to end up just the same place as Judas did. He had the best leaders in the planet. He had 11 apostles, Pharisees, teachers of the law, and none of them saw it. So what hope is there for me? If it can happen to Judas, it can happen to me. I want to share with you two quick ways as we close tonight to keep this from happening in our hearts. First one is to know the truth. Now, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This word know in the Greek, the original language, doesn't refer to a head knowledge. It refers to an experiential knowledge. So I use the example of Michael Jordan. I might know all of Michael Jordan's stats. I know everything about him, all of his six rings, which is better than anything anybody else will ever do. I know all of Michael Jordan's stuff but I don't know him personally. You see, but I know Romy. I have a relationship. I know her. That's the difference. When Jesus says you will know the truth, he's talking about an experiential and relational knowledge. And by the way, guess who the truth is? It's him because he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So when you know Jesus, when you have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, you will be able to discern lie from the truth because you will know the truth. And when you know truth, you don't fall for lies. So part of helping to discern a lie from the truth is walking in an intimate daily relationship with Jesus. That's the way it begins. And here's a cool verse in John chapter 8, verse 28. I think you guys have that one. You guys are doing awesome. When you have lifted up the Son of Man then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. When you have lifted up, oh, your love is strong. When you lift up the Son of God, then you'll know that I am he. Do you know that worship reveals lies? Because it shows you truth. Do you know what I've Notice is one of the first symptoms of someone who has begun to believe lies. Their worship fire starts to smolder. 
When you feel inhibited in worship, it's not your shyness. It's a love issue. And maybe there's a lie that's been attached to that that's keeping your worship from flowing. Because guess what? It ain't the choice of music we've got. I've been in Korea in a stadium full of people with music I would not have listened to in a million years. And I don't even speak the same language. And I am lost in worship because I just love Jesus. And I'm, I'm worshiping in tongues because whatever Korean is, I'm faking Korean or something. I don't know what it was. But it has nothing to do with the choice of music. Worship will help reveal lies to you and will show you truth. That verse promises that. And the last thing, <laughs> Jesus spoke truth to Judas's lie. I think one of the tragedies of Judas's truth, Judas, Judas's life, he never had to wait for Jesus to speak truth to it. He could have asked him at any point in those three years. Hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a minute? I hear you saying this, but there's something that's not lining up in me. I keep having these thoughts and these feelings. Would you show me your truth? Oh, Judas, I'm glad you asked. Let me speak truth to the lie that you've been believing. Hey, Jesus, there's some things that are, I've got conflict here. Anybody ever had conflict? These things aren't lining up. My spirit wants to do this, but my flesh is going, eh. And I, I'm confused about which is which. I don't know what's you, what's me, what's the devil, what's the pizza I ate last night. And Jesus would go, I'm so glad you asked. Because I want to reveal my truth to you. Do you know that's a daily practice that I've had to learn in my life? Of asking the Father to reveal to me lies that I have believed so that he can speak truth to those lies. I wished I learned it 30 years ago, but I'm glad I did. Do you know, Romy and I, believe it or not, have arguments from time to time. We drove four hours from D.C. and spoke for two of those. <laughs> if you want to figure out what my personality is like, often right, never uncertain. I don't know if that makes sense to you at all. So we got into a little bit of a disagreement about something. I know she won't want me telling you this because I was wrong. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> and so it got to a point where we realized continuing to discuss this at volume is not getting anywhere. So let's just not talk for a little while. And as we didn't talk and I'm driving, do you know what's going through my head? Who does she think she is? Doesn't she know, you know what's best in this situation? She's just trying to win this argument. And all these thoughts are going through my head. And I went, Father, would you reveal to me any lies that I've believed about you? And would you reveal to me right now any lies that I believed about me or about Romy? Because I'm getting these thoughts. I love this woman with all my heart. But I'm not experiencing the joy of marriage right now. And I know that's the promise. And so I spent an hour asking this. And God begins to reveal one thing after another. You know what he tells me? 
you believe that you can't be the husband she needs? I'm like, no, surely not I, Lord. And so I had to make a decision. You see, I had to first break off the lie. And then I had to ask God to forgive me of, of any partnership I've taken in that lie. But then I had to turn to her. And you know what I didn't ask her? I didn't say, Romy, would you forgive me? I guess I did. But I knew that she would forgive me. But I remembered this verse and I said, Romy, I repent of the thoughts that I've had towards you. Thoughts that were anything less than loving. Thoughts that were anything less than life-giving. Or words that I've spoken over you. And I break those off in Jesus' name. And I repent of this. You see, because forgiveness is powerful, but forgiveness only looks back. Repentance looks forward. Forgiveness says you're cleansed from what you've done, and repentance says I won't do it again. And I don't want a marriage that I have to keep asking her to forgive me. I know she does already. I want a marriage where I've at least got new things that she needs to forgive me of. Because I've repented of the old things. I'm a work in progress. Don't look at me like you're so holy. We're all working this out together. But I know we've gone a little bit long tonight, but I want you to pray with me as we close. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do exactly what I did in that car. I want you to close your eyes with me for a moment. I don't need any music. You guys are good. And I want you to picture Jesus. Go ahead and close your eyes. Picture Jesus. However it is that you picture him. It's going to look different for everybody. And I'm not telling you what to picture. This is not the power of suggestion. This is not hypnosis. Don't freak out. I'm just asking you to picture Jesus. And I want you to ask this question. Jesus, are there any lies about you that I have believed? Ask him. Whatever first popped in your head is probably him. And I want you to do this with me. See, I renounce that lie. And I break off any agreement that I've had with that lie. Jesus, forgive me for empowering that lie, for believing it. And now I want you to pray this. Jesus, Would you speak your truth to me? What do you have in exchange?
Okay, I want you to go back to him again. Picture him, whatever that picture is of you, of him that you have. Which, by the way, is not just your imagination. God gave you an imagination to perceive him. This is a spiritual thing that's happening. That is Jesus with you. I want you to say, Jesus, is there any lies about me that I have believed? Thank you, Lord. Now we're going to pray. Whatever it is that you heard, say, I break off that lie in Jesus' name. I cancel all agreements that I've had with that lie. And Jesus, forgive me for anything I've done to partner with that lie. And what do you have in exchange for the lie? Would you speak your truth to me? And listen to what he has to say. You may see, hear, or feel something. Thank you, Jesus. We bless what you're doing right now, Jesus. We bless it. We bless it. Amen. Amen. Did anybody hear anything? I'm not, you don't have to say it if you don't want to necessarily. Uh, believe me. This is something that if you practice this on a daily basis you will hear the voice of God. Do you know He wants to speak to you? He wants to speak truth to you. But remember, it's not to condemn, it's to bring life. He loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. He wants you to experience that love, not just to know it, but He wants you to live it, feel it, have it. The key to that is repentance and forgiveness. There's people you need to forgive, Go to God and do the same thing. Say, Jesus, is there anybody I need to forgive? And whoever he puts into your memory, forgive them. And forgive them quickly, forgive them fully, and forgive them again, over and over again. Let him speak truth to your lie, and you'll walk in freedom like you've never experienced before. Amen? Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this, or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.